are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are going to discuss buprenorphine monotherapy, the great debate. This comes at a request of one of our listeners. Is there really a difference between buprenorphine monotherapy versus using the buprenorphine naloxone combination? And this is a great question. We get this frequently when we give talks. So we're going to discuss that. What evidence is out there and what should you do? Yeah, this is a good question because for a lot of folks, buprenorphine monoproduct is or was cheaper than buprenorphine naloxone dual product, especially historically. I think the price gap has closed a little bit. But in places where access is an issue, where people are underinsured or uninsured, it really begs the question of should you and can you safely prescribe buprenorphine monoproduct? product over the dual product. And it's good to know what the literature says about the risks versus the benefits. Also, we're going to answer the question or look at the question of buprenorphine monoproduct versus dual product for pregnant women, because that's always been something that historically we were told to use buprenorphine monoproduct, and now that seems to have changed. So I think I think it's a good question. I think we need to also be able to debunk the myths that patients have about what the difference between the two medications are, because we frequently get requests for buprenorphine by itself. And the reason will be they're allergic to buprenorphine naloxone or it made them sick before or they want to get onto buprenorphine quicker. And so we'll talk about some of those myths and uh, look at the data and the research surrounding that. That's fantastic. Yes. And I agree. Like the, I think the myth number one now, and I think we can kind of debunk that a little bit, is cost. When we first started out practicing, there was a significant cost difference. The buprenorphine monotherapy became generic first and was significantly cheaper. Now in our area, and this does have a geographic difference, but in our area between even the buprenorphine naloxone film, the buprenorphine naloxone tablet, and the buprenorphine monotherapy tablet, there is only a $5 difference between all three of those, and that is the cash pay price. You have a very difficult time arguing cost difference for the patient. If your only rationale for prescribing the buprenorphine monotherapy is you think you're saving the patient a significant amount of money, I think that is not a reason for that is just cost alone. Yeah. And in some areas of the country or whatever people live, if there's only one pharmacy and you don't have the luxury of pharmacy shopping, you know, with good Rx at your fingertips, it might be that the cost discrepancy is more significant. The other myth, especially as perceived by people who are prescribed buprenorphine is that buprenorphine monoproduct is maybe a superior product, that they feel better on it, that it's easier to get on, and that the buprenorphine naloxone somehow has some adverse effects and is less preferential. What is the what does the research and data say about that, Darlene? And also I guess first of all, let's talk about why that would be. Why was naloxone added to buprenorphine to begin with? And you know, buprenorphine's been around for decades and decades as a pain medication and it still is available 
available in other formulations for pain, right? But in terms of use for opioid use disorder, we've had it available in this country, in the United States, since 2002. It was available as buprenorphine monoproduct initially, and then very quickly after that, buprenorphine naloxone. Darlene, what, tell me why, like, why, do you, why was naloxone added and how pharmacologically does the addition of naloxone affect the absorption of the drug? And this is where you get some of that argument with this abuse deterrent, having the naloxone in there. How effective is it in preventing people from abusing? Is it there just because of a political move? Is this because of just overregulation from the government? And that's some of the arguments. Or does it actually serve its purpose? How beneficial is it? And that's what we'll talk a little bit more about. Exactly, because naloxone is an opioid antagonist and a reversal drug for opioid overdose that has very poor bioavailability other than transmucosal route. That's why we give it intranasally or IV or IM. It's not absorbed well orally or sublingually. By the addition of it into the buprenorphine naloxone product, the theory is that it doesn't get absorbed very well. And if it is injected or snorted, that it will precipitate an opioid withdrawal type reaction, which is really averse. And, and there's been some studies that look at how much naloxone is absorbed because it's not zero. It, there is some naloxone that is absorbed. But when they've looked at the tolerability of the absorption of that naloxone, it's it's well tolerated compared to the amount of buprenorphine that people absorb because buprenorphine such a strong, highly affin- has such high affinity for the mu opioid receptor that it, it takes precedent over the naloxone, the very, very small amount of naloxone that could be absorbed. The other thing I just was researching and remembered that the other reason why naloxone effective as an abuse deterrent in the product buprenorphine naloxone is not only that it's poorly absorbed sublingually relative to buprenorphine, which has very good absorption, but also the half-life for buprenorphine is much longer than for naloxone. So the half-life of buprenorphine being about 32 hours, the half-life of naloxone being about one hour. You know, you get rapid absorption of buprenorphine and you get a peak plasma concentration right around an hour. And any micro amounts of naloxone that are absorbed are much, much lower and they decline very quickly. Very, There's a huge dose differential there. And there can be interpatient variation with this. And some patients may absorb more naloxone and may keep it around longer or have faster metabolism than buprenorphine, but it's not typical. I think that's very helpful. From the Journal of Addiction Medicine, prescribing the buprenorphine monoproduct for adverse effects of buprenorphine naloxone. And this is from Grande et al. And this came from January, February, 2022. It was really interesting couple different things they talked about, but one, when it compared buprenorphine, naloxone, and buprenorphine, it's agreed that patients can abuse both, but the buprenorphine was reported as more rewarding, and the buprenorphine naloxone has a delayed effect, which is probably why you have that delayed reward effect, which is probably why you get less of that abuse. However, even with only like 4% of the survey respondents with an opioid use disorder even 
listed the buprenorphine product as their drug of choice. So even though it has a higher diversion rate compared to methadone, and we'll get into those statistics a little bit later, because there's so much other, and basically they attributed that in this article where heroin is is inexpensive and is much more readily accessible. And that was the rationale behind it. When people are looking for something to, to basically to cause euphoria, this is not their drug of choice for that. When people are using this on the streets, this is to curb withdrawal symptoms. Exactly. And and for those listeners who may be not as familiar with buprenorphine, you know, this is a medication that is a partial opioid. So it acts on the opioid receptors in a way that doesn't activate them all the way in terms of all the kind of negative side effects, but it is effective for withdrawal and craving. So we like it for that reason. It's also a good medication for the treatment of addiction because it has a long half-life. That's kind of one of the requirements for medications for treatment for addiction in terms of long acting. But the concern is because it still is a partial opioid, it still has reinforcing effects. And this is why it's a controlled substance. This is why it is a controlled substance schedule three, that it is abusable. It is people can get physically and do get physically dependent on it, which is different from addicted to it. And there is a risk of both abuse and diversion, which is what Darlene is talking about. Abuse being someone uses it themselves in a way that's inappropriate and not in alignment with the way it's prescribed. So for example, taking too much or using it by another route, such as snorting it or injecting it. And diversion would be taking your prescription and either giving it or selling it to other people. So not taking it yourself. And that, that seems to be the risk surrounding buprenorphine just because it's a partial opioid. You know, we don't see abuse and diversion of medications like naltrexone because it's an opioid antagonist and doesn't give that euphoric effect. There is this paper, um, Darlene, it published in the Journal of Addiction. This was back in 2011, but I think this is is interesting. Just similar to what you're saying, the title of the paper is The Pharmacodynamic and Pharmacokinetic Profile of Intranasal Crushed Buprenorphine and Buprenorphine Naloxone Tablets and Opioid Users by Middleton and all. And they looked to see if, you know, which formulation uh, was the most liked okay, in quotation marks. So it's another kind of preferred preferential study, although this is actually not just in the sublingual form, but in the um, intranasal route. And they gave adults who were dependent on opioids, buprenorphine crushed or crushed buprenorphine naloxone. And then they assessed their bioavailability, they looked at their blood samples, and they measured their ratings of liking. So like, how much did they like it? And much like your study found, buprenorphine alone, bioavailability was higher. The Tmax, which is how long, or the time to peak um, effect was shorter than that of the 8 slash 2 milligrams, the dual product. However, and the subjects reported higher liking and street values for the mono product. But they, this study said, these differences were not statistically significant. I think that's interesting. I think there's lots of studies that replicate this kind of effect, but overall, they all, well, not all, because we haven't reviewed all the literature, but many of them seem to replicate the same findings, that buprenorphine is absorbed quicker, has more euphoria, and obviously the buprenorphine naloxone has a risk for precipitating withdrawal. And then, like you said, there's more diversion of the buprenorphine monoproduct, although commonly diverted for, you know, use of withdrawal, not for abuse. Use, not to get uh, high. 
I mean, that kind of covers abuse of the medications, touching a little bit more onto the diversion. Is it more likely to be diverted if you're using the buprenorphine naloxone or the buprenorphine monotherapy? And just like what that study said, there's some of them shows there's not really much of a difference. There's some shows a little bit more, sometimes with the monotherapy. Yeah, and there was one study both products are are significantly higher than methadone for diversion. And Paula, you'll talk about this a little bit more of why that is. Diversion rates were about, buprenorphine naloxone was 5% and buprenorphine was 9%. And the methadone was less than, was less than 1% as far as when they adjusted for total doses dispensed. Wow. You know, so that was really interesting. And why there's such a discrepancy there, but it's almost, there is a difference between the buprenorphine naloxone and the buprenorphine monotherapy, but why there's such a difference between that and methadone, it's quite a bit of difference with the structure in the methadone clinic. Yeah, there is a big difference. And so this is conjecture here as to why buprenorphine, either buprenorphine monoproduct or buprenorphine uh, with naloxone is more, are more diverted versus methadone, because I, I haven't read the literature reasons why, but just like you said, I, I hazard to guess that it's because methadone is administered under much stricter conditions. I mean, obviously, that's the whole purpose of a methadone program, an OTP, an opioid treatment program, is you have daily dosing of methadone with earned take-home privileges and take-home doses. So per doses distributed, you have the inability really to divert many of those doses. And then for people who do earn take-homes from a methadone clinic, there's two things that go into that. One, it's a kind of a contingent management type system that they've earned those take-homes by proving stability to a certain degree, right? They have had negative urine drug screens and they've been attending the required counseling laid out by their treatment program and they've attended and received their doses every day. They haven't missed doses. Innately, those people are more, we can, I would say they're probably more reliable and more stable, less likely to engage in abuse and diversion. And the other thing that I'm just wondering about is methadone clinic really engage in a lot of callback practices. So it's just part of being in a methadone clinic. You expect you will have a callback for your take-home doses. So what that means is if, say you have 14 days of take-home medication allowed to you or 28 days, you've earned that many doses. So you instead of going in every day and dosing and receiving your methadone like people do early on in treatment or if they're struggling to be opioid or other substance free, they get all those doses to take home in a lockbox. But it's very frequent in a well-run methadone program and it's federally mandated that they randomly call people back in to count the take-home doses to make sure there's good adherence. Whereas I don't know nearly as many outpatient prescribers of buprenorphine slash buprenorphine naloxone who do regular pill counts or medication count. It could be that we just as a culture know that methadone folks know they're, they're not going to divert. Now, that's not to say methadone doesn't get diverted. You know, Methadone liquid definitely gets diverted and we certainly know that methadone pills, which are not being dispensed by methadone clinics for opioid um, use disorder, but other practitioners for pain purposes are quite widely distributed and available on the street. But I think that's fascinating that the bottom line is buprenorphine monoproduct was shown in this study to be diverted at a rate of 9%, buprenorphine naloxone at 5%, and methadone much less than that. The bottom line too, or the, the, the second bottom line, the bottom bottom line of that, uh, if you're a prescriber or if you're a considering being a prescriber or an advocate for people who need this medication,
information is this diversion is nearly always to prevent withdrawal and, and to help bridge people to treatment. It is not often abused. It is abused in some cases. We're not naive to that, but it's nearly always given to friends or acquaintances or sold to be used for the purpose that we use it for in clinic, which is to treat withdrawal and to treat cravings. And hopefully we will reduce the amount of diversion that's needed because people will have access to treatment because the truth is people don't have access to this medication and it's a life-saving medication. The WHO has listed it as an essential medication. And yet how many people struggle to find this? Darlene, you were just telling me about a patient who came to you and had been buying or getting buprenorphine off the street for years and it had kept him stable and sober, but he just didn't have access to a provider. Tell What was that story? About? And I've had plenty of patients tell me the same thing. So it's an access problem. Great. We need to increase access and appropriate care and you will reduce diversion if patients have appropriate care. And I, I exactly. think that's the message. And that's because we get this where providers and patients and you feel like we're so heavily regulated, but this is a lack of access to care is why you're seeing these problems. Okay, so can we just divert for a quick second and talk about access and about how we can all change that? You know, there are good studies out there that show that alternative out of the box ways that people can access buprenorphine work. It works and retention is good. You know, Gail D'Onofrio published a landmark study looking at people who access buprenorphine in the emergency department and it's effective. So instead of coming in and treating their withdrawal with clonidine or opioids or benzos, you give them buprenorphine right there on the spot. You send them with a prescription and you link them to follow up. Guess what? It actually worked. Emergency department availability of buprenorphine is key. There are lots of programs now that are looking at EMS distribution of buprenorphine. So on the site of an overdose or on the site of a call that involves an opioid use disordered folk that actually buprenorphine gets administered or dispensed right at that encounter. The other one would be hospital-based administration of buprenorphine. If I could talk till I'm blue in the face, it would be about this. When patients are admitted to a hospital service and they're dependent on opioids because they have an addiction and they're admitted for whatever reason, you name it, but endocarditis, spinal abscess, osteomyelitis, any other multiple reasons, skin and soft tissue infection, cellulitis, it is so common for people to be left to struggle with their withdrawal and cravings unattended without this medication. And they invariably leave without getting the treatment they need. Availability of buprenorphine for these folks right on the spot while they're admitted and there are ways to get them onto buprenorphine without having to wait 12 to 24 hours without an opioid. And we talk about that in our episode on microdosing and microinitiation of buprenorphine. And then the last one is primary care. You and I, we're primary care doctors. We're family medicine trained. We both practice family medicine we're board certified, we belong to all the organizations. And we as family medicine providers and other primary care providers, whether we're pediatricians, OB-GYNs, psychiatrists, general surgeons, those of us who fall under that internal medicine, that primary care umbrella, we must provide this medication. It is an essential life-saving medication. We would not deny insulin to a new diabetic, right? To a DKA patient. And we, somehow people just Chew. I'm being kind of grumpy today. I got my COVID booster. I'm kind of irritable. I'm just saying. Like, 
I don't feel bad. We'll I don't give feel you sick. that, Paula. <laughs> I don't feel sick. I don't feel anything. I also did an Ironman a week ago and it was very hard and I'm kind of irritable and I'm just saying, not, you're just not going to take it anymore. If you're, if you're primary care, you should be prescribing this, this medication. There's just no way around it. That's a big diversion from the topic, but I just had to say Dr. It Cook today. says you need to do this. You need to do it. <laughs> That's right. I'm leaving that in there. Okay. This is probably the one that we have been told all along. And what does the data st- show? A couple of studies on if you give somebody buprenorphine monotherapy, they're going to inject it. This is a couple of statistics that we found. So buprenorphine monotherapy b- versus buprenorphine naloxone. Fewer buprenorphine naloxone, so this is about 13% versus 28% injected their medication. I have seen this, Paula. We have treated patients that have come to me who've been I had one who, for years, he was not obtaining it from the street, unfortunately. He was getting it from a provider and for four years was injecting his medication and then finally came to me because he recognized, I, he's like, I need, I need treatment. Good, Even yeah. though, because it's that perpetuation of that addictive ritual that he was continuing. The buprenorphine monotherapy did not work for him for that exact reason because it allowed him to kind of continue that ritual behavior. This is why you need incredibly close monitoring in your clinic. So if you choose to prescribe buprenorphine monotherapy for a patient for any reason, you have to be monitoring for any of this type of behavior. And you have to ask, how are you taking your medication? When are you taking your medication? He was completely open about it. And he said, no one ever asked him. He said, you're the first person that's asked me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've I've had patients who didn't do well. I mean, we've all had patients who, who do, if we do this quite a lot, who don't do well with buprenorphine, whether it's because they run into trouble with it, overusing it or obsessing about it or compulsively using it or injecting it, or it's not effective. And that's true for all medications. I mean, give me one medication that's globally perfect for every person. It doesn't exist. However, the number needed to treat for buprenorphine for high dose buprenorphine, 16 milligrams or higher for retention and treatment is two. Then NNT is two. We don't have other medications that are that effective. Yeah. we And I love that point that we should screen for the risks. We should do that for all medications. So always remember and have that risk mitigation conversation because we don't want to put people in harm's way. Certainly not. They understand what's going on with them. If you give them the chance, if we have a chance to really engage and understand and talk to them about what they want and what's going on, maybe buprenorphine is not the right medication. So it's not, we're not one trick ponies with buprenorphine. Yeah. I mean, you, not every patient's going to do well with buprenorphine, but some patients need to be daily monitored. Paula, now you have a lot of tools in your toolbox and use them. Both of us, some patients need to be on an an injectable only. No medication is going to fix everything. And so don't forget your psychosocial support and services. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so last but not least, Paula, we didn't touch on, this has changed in the last couple of years, but when we first started practicing, we could only use buprenorphine with pregnant women, but there's enough data supporting not to destabilize and change our patients over when they become pregnant. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And to make it clear, you know, the preferred medication for opioid use disorder in pregnant women has always been methadone until, you know, recently when there's a big study showing that there was shorter hospital stays and shorter 
shorter duration of neonatal abstinence syndrome with buprenorphine versus methadone. So it's superior in some regards, right, to neonatal outcomes. Looking at buprenorphine naloxone versus buprenorphine for fetal development and maternal outcomes, there's a study published in Substance Abuse Research and Treatment saying, you know, it's called a comparison of buprenorphine plus naloxone to buprenorphine and methadone in the treatment of opioid dependence during pregnancy, maternal and neonatal outcomes by Lund and all. They basically say that neonatal abstinence syndrome with buprenorphine, naloxone, mono, excuse me, dual product, and there are no significant maternal or fetal differences in the with related to the use of buprenorphine plus naloxone for the treatment of opioid dependence during pregnancy. In other words, we just like you said, we can keep people on the dual product if that's what they're stable on. There's a study that's more recently published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in uh, May of 2020. And, you know, there's lots of this research published in the obstetrical uh, literature as well. But this study was published by Nathan Mullins et al. looking at buprenorphine and naloxone versus buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. And it's a cohort study. So they looked at retrospectively for the care of people who were taking either of these medications. And they just purely looked at um, neonatal abstinence syndrome. And they found that the rate of neonatal abstinence syndrome was significantly higher among infants exposed to in utero buprenorphine versus infants who are exposed to buprenorphine and naloxone. It was 54.6% versus 35.3% actually. Neonatal abstinence syndrome was 54% in the bup monoproduct infants and 35% in the bup naloxone patients. They adjusted for all kinds of things and they also looked at secondary outcomes, basically concluded that compared with buprenorphine monotherapy, the combined product is an acceptable alternative pharmacological treatment during pregnancy, which changed is the paradigm of treatment. And our favorite high-risk OB person, uh, Dr. Marcella Smith, she's been on our podcast in episode in uh, season one. She has been stomping her feet about this for a long time, that uh, we really don't need to insist patients get switched to uh, buprenorphine. We can keep them on buprenorphine naloxone. Absolutely. They're already stressed. You know, they're doing well. Just let them stay on their medication and leave them alone. It's so frustrating when they're told by outside sources, stop your medication or change your medication. Just leave them alone. Let them take their medication. Yeah, and I'd be open. But that's it's an interesting question. From the data, risk of diversion, it's a little bit higher with your buprenorphine monotherapy in some studies. Some studies it showed the same. From just our, the next like is we both have experienced, you will see some patients attempting to inject. That is still not extremely common. But again, I don't know how many, if you're not asking, patients aren't going to readily disclose. And if they are not, they may or may not be in active treatment, that you're just always asking about these behaviors on how they're taking their medication. And this certainly warrants that no, whether we are take whether you're prescribing buprenorphine monotherapy or buprenorphine naloxone, we always have a, a risk mitigation strategy in our practice, which is urine drug screens, medication counts, and collateral information. Those practices just need to be in place because this is a controlled substance. Tolerability, patients do well on both. You're not going to see one better than the other. And is that, and I think both of us in our practices. I think yes and no. So it's worth delving into. I can't say I've had anybody, maybe I've had one person in all the years, I mean, I'm not that old, but in many years of initiating people on buprenorphine, naloxone, especially in the inpatient hospital setting, in a psychiatric hospital, where when you educate, when we talk about it and we give it another try and we do a correct 
initiation, they tolerate it absolutely perfectly. That is an excellent point because that is something we see all the time. You'll have patients who come in for treatment and they immediately are like, nope, I cannot take buprenorphine. And, and they tell you, and it's exactly what you're talking about. If they were given it before or if they tried on the street, it's typically a dose issue. That's really important. We always do a trial of buprenorphine naloxone first and 99% of the time it, it was because they're previous experience was a dose effect or the time effect. Yeah, pregnancy, what Paula just said, buprenorphine naloxone is is perfectly safe. It isn't buprenorphine monotherapy. It's not superior in pregnancy. So if you have someone on buprenorphine naloxone, they do not need to be switched. It's interesting. It will be something that will continue to be debated in the addiction community. And it is something that it's just like a lot of other substances out there. We talk to physicians and people have very strong feelings on this. I caution providers to really look and talk with your patients and and stay away from using one and only one product only in your practice. We just say use every tool in your toolbox. All of these medications available to us so use them because not one thing is going to work for every patient. Right. I totally agree. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Thanks for your support. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.